I'd like to reflect this, this morning on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his death, but I'd like to do it in a little bit of a different way. I'd like to share with you the steps that Jesus took that led to the place where he had victory over death and sin. So I want to start with a, with a question for you, kind of a supposition, something for you to ponder. Imagine that you haven't been feeling very well over the last couple of weeks. You're overly tired. You just don't feel like yourself. And you put off going to see the doctor. Now, a lot of guys do that. When guys don't feel too well, they figure, don't worry about it, brush it off. I'm not going to any doctors. We know some people like that. But eventually, it gets so bad that you decide you want to see the doctor. And he does a full round of blood tests. Days later, the office calls, and the doctor wants you to come to the office to discuss test results. Now, when people hear that, their blood runs cold. It's a frightening thing when they say they want to see it, because it would be just so easy for them to call you up and say, everything's fine, but as soon as you're here, come to the office, bing, everything goes cold. You go, he leads you uh, into his room, and he looks you in the eye, and then he pronounces, you've got cancer, and he tells you it doesn't look good. The treatments begin, and all the time you have a thin trickle of fear running through your mind. I'm not going to get through this. I'm going to die. That happens thousands of times every day across the world. We fear death as children fear going into the dark. Scary thing for kids, right? Scary thing for adults to think about their mortality. When the treatments are complete, the oncologist sets an, an appointment to assess your results. And he looks you in the eye, and he sees your face. In slow motion, you see him starting to speak, one word after another. And then the words begin to tumble out. We got it all. How do you feel after that? after you've been psyching yourself up that this is going to go terrible, after you've just tied yourself in knots and you've lost sleep, you're no longer under a real or imagined death sentence. The huge weight has been lifted up off your shoulders. As you walk to the car, you take a deep breath and you pray, thank God I'm going to live. Those are very precious words that you're going to live Jesus said in John 10.10, I am come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. In other words, Jesus made a promise to those who are following him. I'm going to give you a better quality of life. You're not going to necessarily live a long life, but you're going to live a good life. You're going to have a purpose. Life's going to have meaning. It's going to be a rich life, a life of purpose, meaning, and things that last forever. And that's a good feeling, and that's what Jesus wants to offer you and me. But in order to bring about his new life, Jesus had to be offered up in death. Jesus said this, before a seed can be brought forth, it must first be put into the ground. Before a, before a vegetable or a fruit can bear anything, the seeds first gotta go into the ground. And it's got to germinate there. It's got to be in the ground. The moisture's got to be right and all that business. And Jesus said, before I can bring you life, I've got to be made dead like a seed buried in the ground. 
For that seed to bear fruit, Jesus' life to bear fruit, he had to die first. In the closing hours of his life on earth, Jesus began the process by which our spiritual life would be born. And I want to share with you seven steps Jesus took to have victory over death for you. So let's begin. Kind of get the picture. This is taking us from the moment Jesus was arrested. Step number one, the betrayal. He was betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples. This was the guy who was hanging out with Judas for years. You would think he'd know better. Say, this guy's been so close to Jesus. He said all the good things that Jesus did. But he still betrayed him. And the betrayal was bought for 30 pieces of silver, a relatively inexpensive price for life. But over 700 years prior to that event, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And here it is actually happening. He was arrested as he prayed in the garden. He was a perfect place of peace, as far as that's concerned. Gardens are very peaceful places. They're places that encourage people. They're places of beauty. And yet it's in this place of beauty that Jesus is in such an ugly fashion betrayed. He was betrayed by a kiss. I mean, that's like the ultimate insult. Step number two, the unjust trial begins. The unjust trial begins. He was brought before a religious court he was denied all the rights of an accused under Jewish law. So everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong, not by accident, but on purpose. He was, he was the court paid two men to lie about him under oath. Think about this. You go to court, and the court itself, the judge and others in the court, actually pay two people to lie about you. I mean, what chance do you stand under that situation? Court's supposed to be a place of blind justice. Instead, the court already had a disposition to find Jesus guilty. Politics was behind this, like so many things we see in our, in our culture today. So many things that seem not to be right have a political reasoning behind them. And so it was with Jesus. They wanted him dead. While on trial, another of his disciples, Peter, denied ever knowing him. Again, the ultimate insight, insult. Peter knew Jesus. Peter said he loved Jesus. Well, how could somebody who loves Jesus, knows Jesus, has lived with Jesus, deny that he is who he is? But Peter did that. When the religious trial was complete, and Jesus was found guilty of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be exactly what he is, the Son of God in the flesh, God in the flesh. The judges, what do you think the judges did? Here they are on their high, lofty place, judging this man. They find him guilty. You figure that should be the end of it, right? No, you know what they do? They come down from their high place and they spit on him. And then they slap him across the face. They rough him up, and then they sent him to civil authorities. And they're hoping that the civil authorities would do something the religious authorities could do, and that would be to sentence Jesus to death. It was another trial before the regional governor Pontius Pilate that religious leaders would make the case for Jesus' death. All they could do, they couldn't sentence Jesus to death. The, the Romans had to do that. 
but they could make the case against Jesus. That's what they did. The governor questioned Jesus, but could not find sufficient legal grounds to order him executed. Pilate asked Jesus if he was the Messiah, King of the Jews, and Jesus answered simply, it is as you say. Imagine that. Are you, are you God's son? Now you said it. I don't, have to, I don't have to repeat it. You said it. Pilate shoves Jesus off to King Herod. Herod ships Jesus back to Pilate. You handle this. See, no, again, everybody's playing tag with him. Someplace, maybe deep down inside their psyche, they realize you don't want to do this. Imagine standing, Jesus standing in front of you, a perfectly perfect man with no sin, with never having done anything wrong, and you're about to condemn it, and someplace deep down inside, you know it. You know you're doing the wrong thing. There's a kind of a conviction. Think about this. Pilate's wife, the judge's wife, was having nightmares about this phony trial and false accusation. So she begs her husband not to be the one to condemn Jesus. And he found a way to wash his hands of the final verdict. In this case, washing hands could not disinfect Pilate's vital, uh, uh, viral sins. It was customary at Passover for the governor to release a prisoner that the people wanted freed. So he gave the citizens of Jerusalem a choice. Here's this innocent man. I can't find anything wrong with him. And here's this other guy. And this is Barabbas. And he's guilty of so many crimes, I can't even begin to enumerate it. So here's your choice, folks. Pilate's making the case. Choose this innocent Jesus or choose this guilty Barabbas. What will you do? Now remember, almost hours before this court trial, Jesus had come into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And they were throwing palms and they were saying, hallelujah, uh, God's son come to earth. And they're praising him and they're clapping for him and they're singing about him. One minute, he's a hero. And now here he stands before the many of the same people that were in the crowd. And you know what they say? Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Kill him. Boy, I'll tell you, people are fickle, aren't they? And they're like that too today. Step number three, Jesus' trial by torture began. So now they find him guilty. Now Pilate says, I, have, I, I find nothing wrong with him, but I still turn him over. It's your will that I'm exacting. Guilty Barabbas freed, innocent Jesus condemned. Next step, the soldiers begin to whip Jesus. And they have special whips with stones on the end of them. So every time a lash comes across Jesus' body. It's actually ripping flesh off his bones. They stripped him. They spit on him. They punched him in the head. They mocked him. They cursed him. They put a robe over his shoulders and a crown of thorns on his head. You think you're a king? We'll make you a king. We'll crown you. And these thorns are real big, long corns, thorns, and they go into his head and they begin to cut up his forehead, cut up his brow. Then Jesus began a death march. A heavy, rough-hewn cross was thrown over his shoulders and he was told to walk. Now, they just beat me. I haven't slept in hours. And now I've got to carry this heavy cross through the streets. He was told to walk. It wasn't a long walk measured by miles, 
but for God in the flesh, subject to the human physical effects of blood loss, open wounds, aching muscles, lack of sleep, and the weight of that cross made each step agonizing. But Jesus continued to walk. He walked, he stumbled, they beat him. He crawled, they stood him up, he walked, he stumbled, they beat him. He crawled, they beat him, until he couldn't move. The soldiers then grabbed a guy from the crowd, a nobody, but because this nobody picked up Christ's cross and made it his own to bear, his name still lives 2,000 years later. His name is Simon. Just a nobody off the street who bear Christ's burden. He would have us to do the same, to bear the burdens of others. And what we do for, for Christ and what we do for others is never forgotten. Step number five. Then the journey finally ended on a hill outside the city. The hill was called Calvary. I love the name Calvary. I grew up in a church called the Calvary Church of the Brethren. I was so happy for that name because they were preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. But you know what it really meant? It meant that that hill was a garbage heap. That's where people dumped their refuse. Think about that. The king of the universe, the creator of it all, is relegated now to be crucified, one of the most ignominious way of death, on a garbage heap. It doesn't seem to make any sense. But that does make sense in that Jesus would stoop to any level to be able to bring salvation to you and to me. Jesus was nailed to that cross that he had carried. He wasn't tied to the cross. He was nailed to the cross, but it wasn't rope or nails that kept him on the cross. Jesus was on a mission. It was a mission of love to redeem, that means buy back, a sinful humanity. Sin is the terminal cancer of the soul. I've had cancer. I know what it was like to undergo the chemotherapy. Sin is the terminal cancer of the soul. Powerful chemotherapy and radiation treat physical cancer. But they don't eradicate the corrosive, destructive, deadly effects of sin on the soul. The only treatment and cure for sin is an even more powerful substance than chemotherapy. It's the healing blood of Jesus Christ. Sin brings death. His blood brings life. As he suffered on that cross, Jesus knew if he didn't complete this critical and final part of his mission, man would be without hope, without forgiveness, without salvation, without a new life, without eternal life, and so he endured. He took it all for you, took it all for me. As the hours ticked by, then Jesus spoke. Famous people's last words often tell a lot about them. There was a famous comedian back in the 30s named Charlie Chaplin, and he said this, in the end, everything is a gag, a big joke. Karl Marx, the communist le leader, said, go on, get out, last words are for fools. Emptiness. Those words are soon forgotten and almost never quoted. By contrast, Jesus' last words have lived for 2,000 years, and they tell us so much about him. Number one, of his persecutors, of the people who were persecuting him and beating him and spitting on him, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. When was the last time you got cut off on the road by some crazy driver? Did you whisper under your breath, Father, forgive them? 
Or did you have other thoughts in your head? Under the circumstances of Jesus, it's miraculous what he did. So filled with love to a thief that was hanging beside him. Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. There are people who don't believe in, in, um, in late life confessions, deathbed confessions. I believe in them. I've experienced that. I've seen people come to Jesus Christ in the closing hours of their life and have tears in their eyes. So focused and content on who Jesus is. To his mother, Jesus said, woman, behold thy son. He was still thinking about the people closest to him, and he was thinking about you too. To his heavenly father, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, the answer to that is because God can't stand sin, and Jesus was covered with your sin and mine, and God couldn't bear it. He couldn't look down upon that sin. And Jesus had a kind of cosmic loneliness in the entire universe. He was loveless. To onlookers standing there, he said, I thirst. To a world he came to save, he said, it is finished. My mission is accomplished. And to the, to the Father in his final prayer, Jesus said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. As evening drew near, Roman soldiers, civic and religious authorities, all certified that Jesus died. And there are so many skeptics out there who say he didn't die, he was just unconscious, he was in a coma, he was drugged, he walked away, it's a fake. No, this is not fake news. The truth is that Jesus is dead. How do I know? Because every authority 2,000 years ago at that time certified that Jesus died on the cross. Rome were, were experts at killing people by crucifixion. They certified that Jesus was death. The Jewish authorities who didn't want Jesus alive certified that Jesus was dead. So if those authorities could, could, uh, could validate that and sign off on that, you can rest assured no skeptic in the 21st century can repudiate it. Step number six, he was then buried in a borrowed tomb. Friends buried him in a stone tomb. He was wrapped in burial clothes, sort of looked like a mummy. At the insistence of religious leaders, Roman authorities commanded the tomb entrance be sealed. Guards were posted and they had these orders. Nobody goes in, and Jesus doesn't come out. This was what their mandate was. And within that sealed tomb, for religious leaders, the problem of Jesus was solved. For Rome, the crucified king of the Jews now reigns in a tomb and not on a throne, case closed. For his followers, Jesus is dead, not comma, exclamation point. Hope has died. Along with the tomb, his lips are sealed. His words, his wisdom, his wondrous works, all of it has gone the way of mortal men. In the end, we all wind up in a grave. Darkness falls. Days pass. Those who love him grieve. Those who hate it and fear him sleep well. On the third day after his crucifixion, a group of women elect to go to the tomb. They want to be close to the body of their beloved. 
They want to perform some of the Jewish rites of burial. Let's pick up this account in Luke 24, verses 1 to 12, up here on PowerPoint for you. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed, they were confused and puzzled. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and unto all the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women that were with them which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran to the sepulcher. Stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which had come to pass. They were amazed, they were startled, they couldn't believe. The seventh step, the great escape. Five times in the course of his life, Jesus predicted this, I'm going to die. Well, that sounds obvious, right? I can tell you that, I'm going to die. And you can tell the same thing back at me. He predicted how he would die and how that three days later he would rise from the dead and appear to his disciples. Now, we all can agree that we can each one of us say that we're going to die. But do you know how you're going to die? Jesus did. In the grip of the despair surrounding his death, his disciples forgot those predictions and that promise. They've come to the tomb to visit the dead, and now they're standing before an empty tomb, and they are witness to the central event in human history. As angels fill the sky to proclaim his birth in a manger, archangels now stand at the tomb to proclaim he is risen. He lives. The grave could not hold him. Death could neither conquer nor defeat this, the creator of heaven and earth. Rome, the greatest power on earth at the time, believed it had extinguished his light. They were certain beyond doubt that they had turned the glory of the Jesus the Nazarene into night. But on the third day, he turned night to day and sunset to dawn, all because he kept his promise. Mark 9, 3. For he taught, he, thought, he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered unto the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. That's a promise before it happened. It's prophecy before it happened. It's a prediction before it happened. But then it happened. At the beginning of this message, I asked you to imagine a scenario that you've been diagnosed with cancer, but you've been treated you're healed and you will live. What if the outcome was different and you weren't healed of terminal cancer? What then? How would you feel then? If you know Jesus as Savior, the outcome will be the same. You will live. You will live. 
Are you telling me that even if I succumb to some illness or accident, I will live? How can that be? It's true because the same one who predicted his death and promised his resurrection is the same one who made this promise to you and he'll keep it. Here's what he says in John 11, 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. But here's the clincher. Jesus asked the question at the end. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? The Bible says that if you're dead and buried and the Lord should come and the trumpet should sound, the Bible says that all these dead bodies who are believers will be raised from the grave. The Bible says if you're alive at that time, when God comes back, when Jesus comes back to take his church out of this world, if you have your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're alive, he will take you out of this world bodily. That's a promise. And he's going to keep it. But he's going to keep it for those who know him. For those who believe now and know Jesus, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah, he's alive. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And you will rise with him if you have put your faith and trust in the living Jesus. He took those seven steps for you. And all you need to do is take one step for him. And that's the step to give your heart and your life over to him. And if you don't know him as your savior, if you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart, there is no more compelling figure on this planet than Jesus. And to know what he did for you should be sufficient motivation for you to want to know him and follow him and love him. This is a wonderful day to give your heart to the Lord if the Lord has been tugging on your heart this morning. And how do I do that? I tell Jesus in my prayer, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I know it. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I believe that Jesus came and died for me, that he was buried in the ground, and he rose again. I put my faith in this Jesus, and I pray, Lord, that he will come into my heart, my sins will be forgiven, and he will help me to live each day to follow Jesus Christ, and this time, be serious about it. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Amen and amen. Does he? If he lives in your heart this morning, rejoice and be glad because he is risen. He's risen indeed. Chris, you want to come up and close in prayer? Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus from heaven to earth to live amongst us 2,000 years ago. Thank you for the perfect life that he lived. Thank you, Father, that he willingly went to the cross and when he did, he had each of our names in his mind, our faces in his mind. He died for each of us. It's a, it's a very personal thing, Lord. Father, there's um, so many things pulling for our attention in this world today, things that uh, we're told are really important. Father, help us to think about our souls today and each day. Lord, I pray for those that don't know you as their Savior, they would think about their soul and they would come to accept your son Jesus as their Savior. 
And for us that do know you, Lord, I pray that we would think of our soul and that we would serve you, that we would um, make you and, and your plan for our life and what you have for us the most important thing, the preeminent thing. Lord, help us to be loving, bold witnesses for you wherever we are in this community, when we go to work, when we go shopping, uh, wherever we are, Lord, let our, our, our mouths praise you, let our lives praise you. All that you did for us, Father, you, you are worthy to, to receive our lives being lived for you. And so we do rejoice today, Father, for the salvation that you, you gave us. Help us to take that rejoicing out and share it with others. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.